0: You lucky, lucky people. I'm trying something new that does, doesn't always end well. Okay. Um, we're locked down and, you know, we're thinking about you guys and we would normally be teaching you, but we're not. Um, so I thought I would try and do something, just make a little bit of a, a podcast. I like listening to podcasts and I listen to quite a lot of them. Um, I th- They're obviously easier to listen to than they are to make. Um, but I, I, I actually really wanted to start off a first podcast by talking about something that I really love. Um, poetry. I actually do love poetry. It matters a lot to me and I spend some of my free time reading poetry and reading about poetry and, and mm. trying to understand poetry a little bit better. Um, I like lots of other things too, which are more sort of <laughs> sort of modern and reflective and things but um, reflective of the times. But I do love poetry and, and I think one of the things maybe that Mr Milne and I both maybe are aware of, is that we both are readers of poetry, both I think like poetry and maybe studied it a bit and wanted to. Whereas I think it's probably harder to say that for you, for you guys and um, not saying you don't, I'm just saying it, I think it's hard in the modern world to really be able to grasp poetry the way maybe people 50 years ago, maybe people certainly a hundred years ago would have valued it far higher than we do, would have just naturally valued it far higher than we do. Um, it was literally a different thing. I, I think it's kind of fallen off the planet for young people, and I think there's lots of reasons for that. I'll maybe talk about some of them. But really what I wanted to do was to go through some poems, read some poetry to you, talk about poetry, um, and maybe try and ask, answer the question, what, why poetry? Why? Why? Just why? <laughs> why does anybody bother? Um with poetry, what is it that we're missing now that people got 50 or 100 years ago? And I was thinking about this. And it occurs to me that there's something about a poem that is kind of essential. It's hard to explain what it is you get from a poem. There's a kind of rightness to it. And it's a very real pleasure and it's a very immediate pleasure, but it's hard to explain. So I started to think, well, what's, what's poetry like? What it, When something's funny, you know it's funny. You can't explain what's making it funny. Well, you can, but it's a, it's a fool's errand. You, you know that something's funny and you feel it. You feel it innately. And I was thinking about humour and what humour is. It's like, like the pleasure of poetry. It's very, very hard to, to pin down and put your finger on Um, I remember reading um, the German philosopher Schopenhauer, who wrote about poetry. Lots of people have written about poetry. Uh, Humour, comedy. Schopenhauer wrote about comedy and tried to explain what it was, which is a a very German sort of thing to be doing, to try to explain what comedy is. That that, that wasn't the wokest remark in the world. But um, Schopenhauer wasn't a very funny guy. His writing isn't very funny. In fact, he was an absolute git. One of the interesting things about Schopenhauer is how much of a git he actually was. Um, But what he had to say about comedy was that eventually it all boiled down to the same thing. Comedy, comedy, jokes are funny because things are placed in the wrong categories. So you put um, knock-knock, there, and you expect that there would be a person at the door. Turns out there isn't a person at the door, there's a riddle at the door, or there's a play on words at the door. Why did the chicken cross the road? Okay, two cannibals, (laughs) and they're eating a clown. One of the cannibals turns to the other and says, does this taste funny? Okay, you've taken the word funny, and you've given it, the the wrong meaning. Does it taste funny means does it taste off? Does it taste funny? Well, it's funny because it's a clown. You've taken the word funny and you've taken it from one category of meaning and you've placed it in another. Why did the chicken cross the road? To do something really stupid, right? And that's the joke. Kids love that joke because a chicken wouldn't do that. Chickens don't drive trucks. Chickens don't work at McDonald's. Chickens don't do all the things that happen in that joke. And then why did the chicken cross the road? To get to the other side kind of brings it back. So you've, you've actually got a chicken and it's actually making a judgment about whether it's going to cross the road or not, blah, blah. But comedy is funny because you've taken something and you've jarred it out of place. You've put something from the wrong category into the response. Whether that's a word with a double meaning or whether it's something else, to try it with any joke you like. It, it's it's All jokes work by having something from the wrong category where they should be. Now, what does that have to do with poetry? Well, poetry's really about getting things exactly right. A poem works because it takes an idea and it uses all of the tricks that a poet has to get something right. Just as a joke deliberately gets it wrong and the result is humour, is the result is a laugh. A poem takes an idea and expresses it in such a way using the, 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 the language, using the ideas, using the structure, using the rhythms and using the rhymes and expresses it in such a perfect way that it that it hits us in the same way that humour hits us. It feels right. It feels congruous, congruent. It's a word we use in poetry, congruent. Congruent sounds and congruent ideas. And it just suddenly, and it feels right. That's why it's hard to explain what people get from poetry until you really have the experience with it. If you met somebody who didn't have a sense of humour, You would think they were quite an odd person. And yet we've somehow lost something analogous to a sense of humor in poetry, which is a sense of poetry, a sense of something sublime, a sense of something perfect, a sense of an expression that's so congruent and makes so much sense that it produces an emotional response, an immediate emotional response. And that's... Where we are, and it, it's not anybody's fault, but a lot of that congruence has just fallen off the table. We're, it's very difficult to reach for. And myself and Mr. Milne will bang on about things being congruent, things being in the right place, the, the, the choice of word choice, tone, you know, all of these things. But if it doesn't land, if it doesn't hit you, then it's like a joke. That to somebody who lacks a sense of humor, it, 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 it has no purpose. It doesn't make sense. And that, that's where we are. And I think that's really what I want to do in this um, podcast. Am I really actually calling this a podcast? Um, it's not a podcast, I know that. But it's, okay, I wanted to go through some poems read you some poems and I want you to think about that and what I've said there about things just immediately emotionally hitting you and that that's the purpose of a poem. We we spend far too long thinking about meanings and asking what a poem means. It doesn't matter what a poem means. You might as well ask what a joke means. There is no meaning to a joke. There is no further function. A joke doesn't exist in order to produce some other kind of an effect. It just exists to produce that laughter. And a poem just exists to produce that sense of rightness, of fitness, of belonging, of an idea expressed with a kind of economy and with a kind of poeticism that produces a lasting Effect in the in the part in the in the reader. I'm going to talk about different things and I'm going to talk about this in, in different ways. So I thought first I might talk a little bit about some of the musicality of, um, poetry. Music is something that's really important to me. And I, that's another thing that we feel without thinking about it. You know, if you put on a rock and roll record, You can feel the beat and you you can feel the rhythm that's coming through it and you respond to it. You respond by tapping your fingers, clicking your fingers, moving your feet, dancing. And rhythm is a central part of poetry and there's lots of things that spring from rhythm, you know, and you can feel rhythms in things. But what's much more interesting is when things slide off the rhythm and there's a couple of poems. I mean, in its simplest form, you can find a very, very strong rhythm in places. In You can find a very strong rhythm in poems. And that's where they come from. They come from songs. They come from um, musical pieces. Now, this is a performance piece from the kind of Victorian or early Victorian era. And it's a very famous poem. But people don't really often remember the poem. There's lots of comic versions of this. Pretty... Rude comic versions But it's a poem It's meant to be a very sad, stirring poem It's about, it's the boy It's called Casabianca And it's by Felicia Dorothea Hemans I'm going to give you all the poems That I'm going to read And you'll you'll know the beginning of it maybe The boy stood on the burning deck When all but he had fled The flame that lit the battle's wreck Shone round him o'er the dead Yet beautiful and bright he stood, as born to rule the storm, a creature of heroic blood, a proud though childlike form. I mean, you've got to laugh at a line like that—a proud though childlike form. But you can hear the rhythm. There's a there's a four a beat, um, a four beat to it. That's a tetrameter. So we've got a um, a tetrametric form. There's four beats in a line, and they're falling. Four by four, it's like a rock and roll record. The boy stood on the burning deck, one, two, three, four, when all but he had fled, the flame that lit the battle's wreck. And it goes on like this, and this boy's on the boat, and the boat's on fire, and it's not going well for him. And um, he's calling out, believe it or not, actually, the story of the poet, he's calling out for his dad because he won't go anywhere until his dad tells him to go, not knowing that his dad... Can you guess what's happened to his dad? His dad has perished. His dad is no more. Um, So he can't get an instruction from his dad. And rather, foolishly in my view, um, he stays and he burns to death. Um, I'll just read the end of the poem. There came a burst of thunder sound. The boy, oh, where was he? Ask of the winds that far around with fragments strewn that strewed the sea. With mast and helm and pen and fear that well had borne their part, but the noblest thing which perished there was that young faithful heart. Oh my God! Right, but no, that's real. It's a real thing. And um, I read it really just to give us a baseline point, the rhythm of the lines that are moving through things. Now. If you've been in my class, I'm sure if you've been in Mr. Milne's class, you'll know about the rhythm that's there in in Shakespearean poetry, in the, the, the poetry, and largely the poetry of his time, which is the iambic pentameter. Instead of there being four beats in a bar, it's five beats in a bar, five beats in a line, five stressed, stressed syllables in a line, and um, they run through the poem. So... The, the the bit I always use is the is Act Two Scene Two of Romeo and Juliet, the balcony scene. But soft, what light from yon, through yonder window breaks? Feel the fives. It is the east, and Juliet, Juliet is the sun. Arise, fair sun, and kill the envious moon. Bunches of fives here, who is already sick and pale with grief. Who is already sick and pale with grief, that thou her maid, art more far fear more art far more fear than she. Be not her maid, since she is envious. Her vestal livery is but sick and green. So the fives we're feeling them, we're feeling the pulse. But the point of the poetry is not that we have the five, it's that the five is underneath what we're hearing. Because If you were to read it out like that, everybody would have left before the first interval. There would be nobody in the theater. Everybody going, well, this is just crap. But the quality of the words kind of dances across the rhythm of the fives and the persistent beat of the fives. You can bring the the beat out and reference it every now and again. But the point is that the words are sliding across that mainframe. Sticking closer to it, moving away from it. Let's read it the way it would have been, but soft. What light through yonder window breaks? It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Arise, fair sun, and kill the envious moon, who is already sick and pale with grief, that thou, her maid, art far more fair than she. Be not her maid, since she is envious, her vestal livery is but sick and green and none but fools do wear it. Cast it off. There's no, there's no remnant of the, of, the, of the rhythm there. We can pull the rhythm back. We can, we can rest on those rhythms, and he often does. Um, but the fact that the beat, the, 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 the pentameter, is underneath the line gives it a coherence, gives it a rightness, gives it an appropriacy gives it a congruence, I'll keep coming back to that idea, that wouldn't be there without the structure. So knowing that the structure is underneath the words, gives it something that it can feed off, gives it something that it can move with. You know, you feel it closer. I mean, I'm, uh, there's the, uh, one of my favourite Philip Larkin poems, and I, I love all Philip Larkin poems, I think, because he's so good structurally at getting his words to move around the structures that he puts them in. And he uses almost every structure that I can think of. He uses Villanelle, he uses all sorts of, um, and he'll often use a pentameter. This poem, I'll just read you the first verse. This poem is To the Sea by Philip Larkin, and it's a wonderful, wonderful poem. To step over the low wall that divides road from concrete walk above the shore brings sharply back something known long before, the miniature gaiety of seasides. Everything crowds under the low horizon, steep beach, blue water, towels, red bathing caps, the small hushed waves, repeated fresh collapse up the warm yellow sand, and further off, a white steamer. Stuck in the afternoon. So that's the first stanza. The See, there's a there's a there's a, a pentameter underneath that. Um, it's an A B B A rhyme scheme. Divides and seasides, shore before, caps collapse. You know, it, it there's, there's a. a all of the structure is there but we don't hear it when we when we read the poem that last line in the first stanza a white steamer stuck in the afternoon that's perfection something pinning the whole scene to the time to the moment the steamer stuck you know it's seen it's, it's, it's the visit to the seaside, seen from the perspective of someone who's lost in it, who's lost in the moment, lost in the in the the thing that they're doing, the importance of the ritual, um, the last stands of the rocks, between the rocks, the rusting soup tins, till the first few families start the to, to trek back to the cars. We all know that. We all we're all familiar with that. The white steamer has gone. Times broken away from it the, the where it was it was moored like breathed on glass the sunlight has turned milky. If the worst of flawless weather is our falling short it may be that through habit these do best coming to the water clumsily undressed yearly teaching their children by a sort of clowning, Helping the old, too, as they ought. I don't think there's a more perfect simile in English literature. Like breathed on glass, the sunlight has turned milky. You you know what that is. I know what it is. Imagine Philip Larkin noticing. Wow. But the... The, the words are spilling out of the rhythm that's there, out of the structure that's underneath them, that's that's holding the fabric of the whole thing together so that the narrative, so that the, the images, so that the the words can go on top. And, you know, the next thing, if we've talked a little bit about rhythm and rhyme, the words are, are, are equally important. The, the interest... It's created from the words, the, the the universe of words that goes on top of things. And obviously word choice is a thing that we talk about when we're responding to poems, when we're responding to text generally. But in a poem, what you're doing, some of the perfection, some of the consonants, the congruence is coming from the sounds that the words make the sounds that the words make and the way that those sounds make us feel. Um, Remember, a joke doesn't have any meaning. A poem doesn't have any meaning beyond the effect that it has on us. We spend much more time analysing poems than we do analysing jokes because I suppose there's a bit more to a poem than there is to a joke, and it's it's about finding those kind of things out, but the, the, the sounds of the words, the way the sounds that the words make relate to the sound of the word next to it creates a whole universe of emotional um, resonance without us even without us even knowing it and quite often we can enjoy a poem for the sound that it makes when it's read out. And we can ignore meaning almost entirely, just as um, the structure of a poem, just as the the rhythm of a poem can disappear under the meaning. So the sounds of the words disappear, but it's another another layer of 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 um, what is it? Another layer of. It's another dimension to the poem that again appeals to our sense of um, rightness, of fitness, of of music. There's a poem. I mean, there's so many different ways of expressing this. There's so many different ways of of of, of trying to understand the importance of sound. Again, I'm just going to read a couple of things. Um, when I think about sound, I always go back to this poem by Wilfred Owen, which is um, Dolce et Decorum Est. It's just one of the most pow- powerful poems ever written. It's such an angry poem. It's a horrible, horrible poem about war, about destruction, about unnecessary waste. And it turns out to be a poem about class and an angry poem about the way our society is arranged but we don't realize that at the beginning listen to the sounds the the, the repeated the the, the the repeated sounds bent double like old beggars under sacks Knock kneed, coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge. Till on the haunting flares we turned our backs and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep, many had lost their boots but limped on, blood shod. All went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of gas shells dropping softly behind. All of those constants consonants, those lists of consonants those the shifting and moving and and oh, it's it's horrible, but it's a wonderful sound. the use of repetition, the use of that phrasing you hear the rhythm coming in <coughs> from time to time it's covered sometimes and then it reveals itself till on the haunting flares we turned our backs there's our there's our. Pentameter and towards our distant rest began to trudge, but then he breaks it up. Men marched asleep, many had lost their boots. The m from men and m from many, cutting that sentence in half, but limped on bloodshot. All went lame, all blind. The repetition that's coming in, breaking up the lines, breaking up the rhythm. Bring the line in when it's needed, but that emphatic punch of all, all men. Many, drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots. So we've got the onomatopoeia coming in, the hoots of gas shells dropping softly behind. Later, um, it becomes an orgy of violence. I've got the, the gas, um, the bomb goes off, and suddenly he's walking behind a uh, 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 What is he walking behind a wagon of men who are dying? And he's walking behind it and he's watching them. If in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in, and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face with new repetition again, like a devil's sick of sin. If you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues. Everything about that is about slicing open meaning and replacing it with this kind of vileness, this kind of writhing agony, which is exactly what he's trying to describe. And then he just turns it on a sixpence, on a dime. He he takes that tone. My friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory the old lie, "Dulci et decorum est, propatria morae. So from, out of these broken, vile sentences, these sounds, these onomatopoeic, these, these crashing consonants, these sibilant, th- 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 frictive and, and sibilant sounds, comes this beautiful, elegant Latin, "Dulci et decorum est, propatria morae. It is good and right to die for one's country. So he's 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 showing how false that is. Another poem, um, Gerard Magney Hopkins, writing in the a modernist writer writing in the early twentieth century. So writing it around about the same time as Wilfred Owen, and um, but maybe pushing it even a little bit further. Wilfred Owen was a was a. a and was a modernist as well. Um, a poem like Dolce Coramest" couldn't have been written. I mean, these were revolutionary poems. These couldn't have been written even ten years earlier. Jared um, Manley Hopkins as well. There's a, there's a very modern idea to a lot of his poetry, and it's about sound. We're thinking about sound now. We're thinking about clashing sound, chiming sounds, euphonic. Cacophonic. Is that right? That's that's not right. Cacophonic? Cacophonic. Anyway, look it up. Um, The grandeur of God. How about this? The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge, and shears man's smell, the soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things, and though the lights, the last lights off the black west went, o oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast, and with, ah, bright wings. Just everything, just falling over everything else, the whole thing being momentarily held up by a, 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 a rhythm, an idea, and then these re- re- repeated consonant sounds that are beating against things and pulling things in funny directions okay so the sound that the words make it's difficult to read that one I think I did remarkably well actually um, so structure I've, I've, I've talked a bit about structure in poetry but there's there's more to say there's always more to say um, people who are in my class in, in S5 will recognise the idea of the sonnet um, a lot of the poems that I've taught, have, by chance, have been sonnets. Um, again, it's another form that poets use that brings their ideas into a kind of unity, a unity of, of of purpose. There's usually two parts to a sonnet. There's a there's a thesis and an antithesis, a thing and its opposite, a, a question and its answer, um, split into two. It's 14 lines long, it's split up into two sections. There's the um, octet and the sestet, the eight line section and the six line section. And the six line section at the end is usually an answer to an idea or a counter counter idea to the idea of the eight line first part. Glasgow Sonnet by Edwin Morgan is a good example. We were talking about the importance of words and the value of words and the sounds of words, bringing them into a structure that creates a sense of movement through something. Um, again, is about structure and form and sound coming together to produce something that's bigger than any of them. I'll read this and I'll comment a little bit as I go. A mean wind wanders through the backcourt trash. The back court trash, we hear those consonants, but at the beginning the mean wind wanders, the wah, 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 coming in and the, the use of three, the wa wah, wah, through the backcourt trash, hackles on puddles rise, hackles and puddles, the dills, dills from a... Um, the repetition of those hackles and puddles rise, old mattresses puff briefly and subside. The internal rhymes, the rise and subside that rhyme, but they're both in the middle of lines. They shouldn't be rhyming. It's the the, the end stopped kind of rhyme. It's an accidental rhyme, but it's it's far from accidental. Play fortresses of brick. Brick and bric a brac spill out some ash. Four stories have no windows left to smash, but in the fifth, a chip sill buttresses, mother and daughter, the last mistresses of that black block condemned to stand, not crash. So that's eight lines of the poem that we've been outside the outside the building. And then we get into the people that live inside the building, the kind of emotional experience of living inside an environment like that. So that's your sixth. We've had the, the, the octet. The sestet deals more with the emotional side of things and inside. Around them the cracks deepen, the rats crawl, the kettle whimpers on a crazy hob, roses of mold grow from ceiling to wall. The man lies late since he has lost his job, smokes on one elbow, letting his coughs fall thinly into an ear too poor to rob strong rhyme at the end, which we've not really had through the poem, gives it an emphasis, gives it a kind of an energy that it hadn't had up to that point. All of those repeated sounds, the pairs of sounds, the little triplets, the little um, threes, the man lies late since he has lost his job through the three L's that are coming into that line, Odd ideas, odd mixes of words. The kettle whimpers on a crazy hob. The sound of the kettle whimpering, not whistling, but whimpering. The crazy hob, it's a a transferred epithet. Crazy doesn't refer to the hob, it refers to the life that they're living. But he, Morgan uses it to describe something as straightforward as a hob puts those things together, smashes them together and, and, and sees what happens. So he's describing the experience of being, of being, of living in, a, in the east end of, of Glasgow, being poor, living in a slum. Um, and he does it in a very, very beautiful way using the sonnet form. The sonnet form historically was associated with love. <laughs> um, they were odes of, of love, ideal love, idealizing gods and goddesses and things like that. That's where, where it comes from, from the Petrarchan form. So by using the sonnet form, he's saying that he's describing something quite dark and quite difficult, but he loves it. It's his city, it's his Glasgow. Uh, Glasgow's in the title, Glasgow Sonnets, number one. And another example, and another one that people in my class would be familiar with from from S five, is um, oh no, it wasn't. It was, it was yes, it was from higher. Was um, Don Patterson? He again he uses an awful lot of sonnet forms. His most recent book um, was a collection of forty sonnets, and um, the example that I would your attention to and I've given you a copy of is not written in a sonnet form. It doesn't have that idealized love idea. Um, It's written in a very different poetic form. It's written in what we call um, heroic couplets. They're not exactly technically heroic couplets because there's there's rules about heroic couplets. But anything written in couplets, couplets, Historically was associated with heroism. We're dealing with a, um, a story, a story of daring do, of grand adventure, um, because historically, these kinds of stories the, the, the Mort Dartha, the, the, the Arthurian legends, stories of adventure and travel were often told using the form of paired lines, heroic couplets. And so Don Patterson uses the form of the couplets to tell the story of him and Ross Moody going up the hill town in Dundee for the very first time. And it's a journey that will change them. And it's a journey in which they'll be challenged. but its he's undercutting, he's undermining, he's the, 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 the form that he's using. He's using the form to draw our attention to the fact that there is an epic journey that he's describing, it's the journey of growing up. It's the journey of growing up and finding the world far more surprising than you expected it to be, far more damaging, far more dangerous than you expected it to be. But for that to happen, suddenly he compresses time in this poem so that things that would take a lifetime happen in the blink of an eye. Um, and it's that act of compression that gives the, the poem its jolt. And it's the heroic couplets and the form of the poem that gives us an understanding that he means us to understand this as a genuine adventure over the course of a lifetime. Base camp. Horizontal sleet. Two small boys have raised the steel flag of the twenty terminus. Me and Ross Moody are going up the hill town for the first time ever on our own. I'm weighing up my spending power. The shillings, tanners, black pennies, florins with bald kings. The cold blazonry of a half-crown, threepenny bits like thick cogs, making them chank together in my pockets. <coughs> so far... So not very much of an exciting adventure, although they're preparing for an, ad- an adventure, the reference to base camp, as though they're going to climb some huge mountain. But it's just the the bus stop, the old corporation sign for the for the bus stop. Um, by the end of the poem, everything, everything has changed. The pace has moved, it's got a lot faster. Um, where no one will have heard of the sweets we ask for, and the man will shake the coins from our fist onto the counter and call for his wife to come through, come through and see this, and if we ever make it home again, the bus will draw into the charred wreck of itself, and we will enter the land at the point we left off. Only our voices sound funny, and all the houses are gone, and the rain tastes like Kelly and black waves fold in very slowly at the foot of McAlpine Road. And our sisters and mothers are 50 years dead." So we get to the the adventure, but it's not at all what we expected. Um, and the end comes as, as a very, well, it's quite shocking really. I think the first time you read that poem, it's very beautiful as well. Um, I've lifted that last line for a song of mine, actually. <laughs> I just just lifted it because <laughs> I'm not gonna run into Don Patterson, I don't think. Um, where are we going? So we've got the structure, we've got the language, we've got the rhythm and the rhyme pe- peeping in and out of the poetry, trying to give it more and more depth more substance. Um, the other thing I guess I, I, I want to talk about is, is imagery. I mean, we've had imagery, the imagery is in every poem, but every now and again, it rises above the, 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 the kind of line by line um, idea of image. Remember what an image is. An image is a comparison between two things. Now, that's fine. You're comparing yeah. two things. Like, like earlier in the in the, the to the sea poem and the the breathed on glass like breathed on glass, so it's a simile like or as like breathed on glass um, but a, a a an image can become much more than a than a passing description. And an image can dominate an idea. I've chosen just a few lines here from the from T. S. Eliot, who was a very important poet in the, the early part of the twentieth century. Um, I always thought he was very, very scary. He wrote some very scary poems, some very, very long poems that were the kind of epitome of everything that um, I found difficult and maybe not too attractive about poetry when I was where you are now and just beginning to learn about it. I've since realised that he could write some very, very moving, simple poetry. Poetry of the everyday, poetry using everyday things and ideas, but uh, they weren't the poems I ran into first. There's this one, The Love Song of J Alfred Poofrock. um which is written just before the First World War. It's kind of in the, the first flush of modernism. And it's got a very famous opening, which I'll just deal with. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky, like a patient etherized upon a table. Hmm, etherised, that's not a word we use anymore. It means um, sedated. Um, what's the word we use? It's good when you go into hospital and you can't back from ten. Um, anyway, that's etherized. So the evening spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. For some for some reason that image jumped into the history of poetry and jumped into the history of imagery as 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 a particularly iconic one. Do you do we know what he means by that? No. In what way is the sky like a patient? Either, but there's something there that we do understand. There's something about the stillness, the lack of movement, the, the 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 sense of a life absent, something absent, maybe in temporary abeyance, maybe not, but something that's past, something that's still, that's past beyond life, you know. And in that sense, it's a it's a perfect. It, you know, it feels right. You know what I said right at the beginning. Poetry is a feeling. Poetry is the feeling that comes from things being right. So, an image like that gains its currency not because it has a meaning, not because you could just oh all right yeah yeah get that. It's not. It's not about that. It's about us feeling it, feeling the rightness of that description for the evening spread out against the sky. Um, Extended metaphors, extended um, images abound in poetry and they always always pull us into an idea. I'm going to read the whole of this poem because it's not long Um, and it's a favourite of mine anyway. I really, really like this one. It's called The Wild Geese. And it's by Mary Oliver and unlike a lot of other poems, I guess this one is a really hopeful, positive poem. I'm afraid this is the only poem out of all the ones I've chosen that's written by a woman, which is really quite shocking. Um, I I, I'm going to be completely honest and say, I probably do read a lot more poetry written by men than I do by women. I would balance that up by saying all of my favorite short story writers are women and a lot of my favorite novelists. Um, I'm not trying to be sexist here, um, but I love this poem, The Wild Geese. And just feel the sense of the geese, okay? This poem only makes sense if you hold on to what geese are like when they're actually flying past us. That kind of extraordinary physicality, that visceral quality, that the, the, the animal, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. So it's a really positive um, poem. It's asking us not to lose ourselves in our despair, our guilt, our shame, because that's what we feel. We're human beings. We, we all feel those things. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a 100 miles through the desert repenting. We all make mistakes. We're all flawed. We're all partial. We're all in need of repentance, but we can't spend all our time asking for it. Why? because there's too much that's in our faces. There's too much going on. There's too much all around us. We're animals and we're surrounded by an animal world. And that excitement of the geese that honk, they honk past Amelry on a spring day. Um, An animal that's, caught up with its place in things, its place in the V, that last line over announcing the your place in the family of things. That's very, very appropriate for geese. We know that they fly and they, they choose their places within the, within the scheme. Um, and they support one another. They feel for each other. They don't ask anything of each other. They don't ask for repentance. They just get on with being geese <laughs> and that's what she's saying, Mary Oliver. Not, not to get on with being a goose. Um, that would be a very different sort of poem, I guess. But to get on with being a human, to, to she talks about the soft animal of our body. She's reminding us what we're encased in, what we're sub sub, sub, sub what our substance is. Tell me about your despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. It's it's a story we all have. We all share. And it's the sharing of it, maybe, that's more important than the substance of it. That's more important than the detail of it. The fact that we can share. You do not have to be good. That's an important idea. And what holds it all together is the, the image of the geese the image of that particular animal. Why that animal? Because it appears suddenly and it's gone and it just reminds us of what we are and where we are, because it travels in a V, because we know it belongs to an organized system that's more important than any part of it. Yes, because of the sound it makes. What does she say? The high and the clean blue ear, harsh, the sound, their sound, harsh and exciting over and over, the repetition, the insistence, you know announcing your place in things. so their sound, their suddenness, their physicality. All of these things bring pull the geese into the poem, and the image of the geese holds the whole poem together. Imagery. Um, poems work through imagery. They, comp- they they work through comparing things to other things. Language works through imagery. The word for knife isn't a knife. Um, it simply goes along with the idea of a, of a knife. So we compare that sound to the thing that it um, denotes. We have pairs of ideas that belong together. That's what metaphor is. Um, so metaphor is everywhere And so it's not surprising it's a big part of poetry. But just think, it's like a magic trick, isn't it? A a metaphor language is a magic trick. A poem is a magic trick. An image within a poem is a magic trick. In The Wild Geese, we've got the extended metaphor that really allows the, the poem to live. Ted Hughes is a writer that uses imagery a lot. will allow an extended image to exist. I'm going to take a little break before I continue and then I'll just start again. Okay, Um, do you know what? I think that's part one. I think that's part one finished. I've got a few more things to say, I don't know whether you've enjoyed this, whether it's been fun, enlightening, amusing, diverting, all these various things that it it might be (laughs) in an ideal world. Okay, so I'm going to draw a a veil over this episode of, what do we call it, Um, Mr Matheson's Poetry Podcast. And you are my podcast. And if you've got to the, this far through it, well done. Jeez, oh. Right, we'll have a go with episode two soon. Okay. Feedback. Um, like and subscribe. All of those things. Okay, farewell. <laughs>